the podcast? <laughs> I believe so. Okay. Hey, everybody. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Science in Podcast, presented by Science and Pictures Magazine. As always, we have two people in the room. A cat. I was... You spoiled oh, it. Oh, we're going to get to that. You spoiled his big introduction. <laughs> or a little introduction, because he's a little guy. He's just a little... He's just a chubba bun. Just completely ignoring us right now. Oh, no, he just I looked at me. I love you. Slow blink. Hey, little man. His name is Jack. So if you hear us talking to Jack, he's not our audio engineer. <laughs> Although that'd be great because he hasn't paid rent ever. <laughs> <laughs> Start earning your keyboard, man. So if the audio this week is strange, that's uh, that's Jack. He's the newest member of Science and Podcast team. Maybe we'll catch like the low frequency uh, purrs. Maybe. Yeah, because he's a happy boy. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, uh, we're not here to gush about the cat. We're here to take the headache. Out of peer-reviewed scientific literature, which is what we attempt to do every week, while also going on tangents yeah. and like fun, making fun science jokes, just like being friends and stuff. I.e. we do our best. And you're our friend, too, if you listen. So, yeah, hey. the collective you. Yeah, just like eat your cereal and laugh and pretend we're in the room. <laughs> They're eating your cereal in the car? Uh, maybe they are. Most of my podcast them. listening is in the car, so that's my favorite reference. They might be eating breakfast, they might be in the car, they might be grocery shopping, they might be tending to their salamanders. I have listened to podcasts while tending to my salamander. That's anyway. a good point. Anyway, uh, none of this is what our uh, this week is about, <laughs> um, but it was my turn to bring the paper. And the paper I brought to us this week will have us dipping our toes into the fossil record yet again, this time with fossil fishes. All right. So it sounds like we're talking about fish faces. Yes, indeed. Specifically, we're going to be talking about what that prehistoric mouth do. <laughs> the way you said that, too, you were like, I'm going to make this real serious. I tried to Vsauce it. Like a real radio show. <laughs> and then you say, what that prehistoric mouth do. <laughs> Thank you. I enjoyed writing that. It was good. If you um, liked that, you'll like the rest of the show, friends. I agree. <laughs> um, so, you know, what that prehistoric mouth do and the paths um, that evolution may have taken after the very first vertebrates that acquired jaws acquired jaws. Wow. Mm -hmm. This paper was published on March 18th of this year, open access, yay, into the okay. peer-reviewed journal Science Advances and has uh, a bunch of authors, but uh, as usual on the show and in the interest of time, uh, it was lead authored by scientists William Deacon, Philip Donahue, and Emily Rayfield, of the University of Bristol, UK's... I knew it was the UK by those names. Oh, of course. Continue. Uh, University of Bristol, UK's School of Earth Sciences. Its title, Increasing Morphological Disparity and Decreasing Optimality for Jaw Speed and Strength During the Radiation of Jaw Vertebrates. First, though, some fun facts. Um, so uh, those of us in New England are actually starting to see bees around this point, uh, not just uh, the invasive... Uh, uh, what do we call them now? Non-native livestock bees, uh, what, what most people know as honeybees, Apis mellifera. Um, but I'm talking about the uh, minor bee species uh, or genus Andrina, which are really, really cool bees. They actually will, will reach adulthood in the fall, and then they will make these little burrows uh, in the ground and waterproof them and then come out in the winter, and it's really cool. Um, well, their moms make the burrows and they just grow up in them. But uh, the point being that Andrina species are actually more effective pollinators in cold weather than European honeybees. Uh, which means that around this time, they're actually even more effective pollinators than honeybees are. That's super cool. Love learning about native bees, especially because, like, the way they do things seems so homey. Build a little burrow, mm -hmm. waterproof it, just like a little hole in a tree to grow up in. That's oh, yeah. my dream. Good moms. Oh, 
That's what I wish I, if I could raise children in a tiny burrow in a tree, maybe I'd have them. <laughs> I love that fact. Oh, it's also uh, one of the world's largest genre of animals. Um, and the relationships inside are not too well known, which Madison was having a hoot with a couple nights ago. That's true. He did send me a screenshot. Actually, no, I, he told me the fact and then I looked up the genus of bees and it's just like, we know nothing about these. <laughs> <laughs> There's a ton of animals in this genus. We can't really describe them. They kind of look like this. <laughs> they, all got, they all got mustaches or facial foveae. Or yeah, what that's them. the only thing. They're like, they all have mustaches. That's all we know. <laughs> so, like new time. favorite genre of animal. <laughs> <laughs> the minor bee, Andrina. The minor bee. Just a little bee. Mm-hmm. Cute. My fun fact is that Jack, Jack is just so cute when he's just sniffing stuff. You talk about cats and their weird hooked penises. I don't know that, and I don't wish to. <laughs> <laughs> I will not expound to that. Oh yeah, here's one. Okay, this is about whales again. Because, you know, I just love to terrify Jared. <laughs> Did you know that blue whales are... Uh, uh, that's the biggest one. Yes, they are. They, they also make the loudest sound on Earth that any living thing makes. Really? And also louder than a 747 jet. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. But you know what's really cool about it, evolutionarily speaking? Hit me. They evolved to be that loud so they can talk to each other a hundred miles away. <laughs> In the ocean. That's some crazy convergent evolution going on with elephants, too. Because they have these little, little, little spongy jelly feet, and they put these low vibrations through, through the ground. And it's not like, as far as blue whales evidently do, but they can communicate just with their feet and, like, rumbling over really far distances. So cool. Like, so these really big animals that, you know, need a large space that's their own. So they do have, like, important things to communicate, especially because they won't even slow down for less than, like, a massive amount of krill. Whoa. Yeah. They'll There's, just swim right through without opening their mouth. Because the, when they open their mouth, it's like a parachute and it slows them down from like six miles per hour to like, or no, sorry, from like 15 miles per hour to like six miles per I've hour. I've never thought about that. But yeah. Wow. So like if it's too small, they're like not worth it. <laughs> Keep swimming. Do they just plow through it and just like yeah, murder just, a bunch of krill by turbulence? <laughs> just like, ugh. I just find them endlessly fascinating. Yeah. But... The sad end to that fun fact is that now, because of noise pollution, they can typically only hear each other 10 miles away. But still, 10 miles, that's like... Yeah, so we definitely handicapped them, but they still got it going on. Yeah, they really do. Ah, I love them. Okay. So we are nearly ready to dive into this week's topic. Uh, just got to get a few key terms squared away. Okay, uh, I have this coworker Ed, who listens and told me that uh, this uh, thing we generally call the jargon corner should really be the alliterative jargon junction. Ooh. And so I would like to formally change it to the jargon junction here and now. Sorry, Ed. It's ours now. I told. I, I already told him we're stealing it. All right. Thank you, Ed, for your donation. And welcome to the jargon junction. The jargon junction. I love me some alliteration. Also, my friends, if you've been confused by the fun facts in recent episodes. Soon we will be moving those to their own tiny episode called a mini-sode. Just a fun-sized little fun-fat corner. Little snack size. Yeah, so get ready for some appetizers. But first, get ready for some jargon. Let's do it. So the first one is a two-parter. We have the infraphylum nathostomata. Infraphylum. So first, what's an infraphylum? A phylum inside a phylum? Kinda, yeah. Like a category Um, inside a phylum. And, and it is an official ranking, but it's not uh, the same size as the ones that we typically talk about. You know, the King Philip came over for good soup. Mm-hmm. So an infraphylum is one of the two levels of classification that sits between the levels of phylum and order, being smaller than the former and larger than the latter. So an infraphylum is larger than an order, but smaller than a phylum proper. Okay, so just like a, another like mini stair step between those two. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So the infraphylum nathostomata, or the nathostomes if we're going to talk about them as like a noun, 
um, is nestled within the phylum Chordata, the subphylum Vertebrata, the vertebrate or the backboned animals, mm -hmm. and that's it. Oh, so they're just vertebrates. That's yep, it. they're vertebrates with jaws. Nathostomata directly translates to jaw mouth, uh, which might sound silly uh, by itself, but is actually a very important distinction because... Not all mouths have jaws. Yeah, exactly. The very first vertebrates that lived uh, on this planet most in all likelihood lived the lives with filter feeders and did not actually possess movable jaws. Uh, and those movable jaws, by the way, are very largely responsible for the modern diversity that vertebrates enjoy in total. Like, yeah. jaws allow our ancestors to literally take over the planet. Also, like, can we talk about the evolution of human speech? Wouldn't be possible without jaws. Would not be possible without jaws. And that's a good point you bring up. Uh, so anathostome is quite literally any vertebrate that either has or used to have jaws. Because some vertebrates have lost theirs. Cool. Also, some, some vertebrates have lost their vertebrae. I believe mm -hmm. hagfish uh, now have a sort of, like, pseudo-vertebrae. Which is really cool. Yep, that's true. Uh, so, Madison, do you know how the vertebrate nath initially came to be? The vertebrate nath? The vertebrate jaw. Oh, the jaw. Okay. Nathostome. Yes. I mean, no, I don't know how. <laughs> <laughs> I think it has something to do with the gill arches. Yeah, exactly right. Okay. Um, so if you... We think exactly right. We're, we're pretty sure at this point. Exactly um, maybe. Yeah, exactly maybe. <laughs> um, if you were to look at a fish skeleton, uh, you'd see that the gills are supported internally by a series of bony arches. If you were to look at a human embryo, you would also see the pharyngeal arches before they disappear and become other structures because we're humans. Yeah, when we have gills, when we're a tiny little pre-baby. Mm -hmm. But uh, paleoichthyologists, that's a ichthyologist that studies extinct fish. Great. Mm -hmm. Are now largely in agreement that the jaw came to be as a result of the frontmost arches being remodeled by natural selection for a predatory function. Breathing become eating. Breathing become eating. Quite. Quite. <laughs> Go on. We're drinking tea and I feel like that's leaking into the podcast. We're all drinking tea. Um, <laughs> We're drinking tea and there's a cat. <laughs> Very cozy. So next up, the Siluro-Devonian. Siluro-Devonian. So the Devonian is a period mm -hmm. um, in geologic history. I'm going to tell you the Silurian, uh, which is the Siluro part, is also a period. I was going to say, I was, I was thinking, I used to, in my head it's the Silurian, but you, it's I, because I've only read it. I don't think I, I don't think anyone cares if you say Silurian or Silurian. Yeah. So that, that would mean, you know, that period of geologic history that's sort of between those two, like the cuspy period. Exactly right again. Like, we're not sure if she's a Pisces or an Aquarius. <laughs> Just to draw a parallel. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. Uh, these are two periods of geologic time. Uh, the Silurian period, which occurred from about 444 to 420 million years ago, um, and the Devonian period, uh, which occurred from about 419 to 359 million years ago. Um, a long time ago. I also want to mention, because I don't think I've ever said this on the podcast before, that I, I memorized my geologic time periods of the recent uh, past by the uh, Respect song, you know, R-E-S-P-C-T. Does it go in that order? No, but oh. I changed it uh, to C-O-S-D-C-P, which is Cambrian, Ordovician, Silurian, Devonian, Carboniferous, Permian. One more time. C-O-S-D-C-P. Which stands for? Tell me what it means. Oh, you. Cambrian. Ordovician. Silurian. Devonian. Carboniferous. Permian. And then for some reason I haven't done the more recent ones, which are Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous. Um, and then we're living in the Quaternary right now. Um, so I'll include those later, I guess. It's a work in progress, everybody. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Tell everyone <laughs> you know. It's a brilliant series he's working on. We'll see if I regret keeping that part in. Um, uh, it's going in. Uh, sure. Um, <laughs> fine. Uh, so the fossil record tells us that it was somewhere near the end of the Silurian period and also somewhere near the beginning of the Devonian period, hence the combination of names, 
that the first fishes with Jaws, um, our direct ancestors, first swam onto the scene, somewhere in the ballpark of 430 to 410 million years ago. So they did be swimming already, but they did not be munching or crunching. No Jaws yet. Maybe vacuuming. Vacuuming. Just sucking it. Uh-oh. Okay. No, no, no. Keep going. Finish the thought. Sucking up the food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next up in the Dragon Junction, adaptive radiation. Adaptive radiation, that's what I know. That's where um, things morphologically change as you go outward from a place. A place in time. Yeah. Yeah, good. Um, yeah, exactly. Adaptive radiations are often large-scale evolutionary events. I love that term, evolutionary event. <laughs> um, where a group of organisms experiences a boom in diversity as it expands into new ecological niches. Yeah. We've... Do, do we to describe niche? I feel like we've talked about it already in a lot of episodes. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the, the place where they have a job. Yeah, it's their role in yeah. society if they were good. Yeah, role <laughs> in society is a good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Not direct metaphor. Exactly. Um, so adaptive radiation is very reliably observed in the wake of mass extinction events. Um, that's where you are most likely to see it if you want to go looking. As their survivors pick up the pieces of their, quite frankly, obliterated eco ecosystems and build something new out of them. But they don't always require an apocalypse to occur. Um, other routes include uh, what Madison was talking about with the Galapagos, which is diversification after arrival to a new location, as is often the case on islands. Um, or more in line with this week's topic, after acquiring a game-changing adaptation, like, Ooh. say, movable jaws. Yeah, that is a game-changer. Mm -hmm. It's similar to when, in the world of capitalism, someone invents a new thing that's really useful, and then suddenly you see every single company coming out with their version. That's also a good metaphor for adaptive radiation. In our case, it's more like stagnation, because they're not making anything new anymore. Um, because capitalism is worse. Uh -huh. uh, and <laughs> that's why we move on. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, last up is uh, the class Placodermi, or the Placoderms. Hmm. Placoderms. Derm means skin. Mm -hmm. Placa, scales. Scaled skin. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Tough stuff. So, uh, the Placoderms were, were being a key term, because they're now entirely extinct, probably, uh, but they're a now entirely extinct sister group to the extant bony and cartilaginous fishes. Mm -hmm. So they were sort of like our dead cousin. That was sad. Oh, no. <laughs> Whoops. Okay, but... To be less sad, they're like, <laughs> they look kind of like armored fishes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but what's really cool is how ridiculously varied they were. Uh, these fishes exhibited a broad range of body plants. Uh, but you're exactly right. They did tend to have in common a head and trunk, because fishes don't actually have necks, believe it or not. Um, I believe it. Mm -hmm, enveloped in thick, heavy, bony plates, with the rest of the body either being naked or scaleless. Wow. Just like a really thick, bony neck and then pee. Oh, Yes. <laughs> Um, the Placodermis were some of the first fishes to appear in, in, in the fossil record with jaws, uh, which ranged in complexity from, from a single bone uh, to multi-boned and decked out with, with teeth. Into, is there, how is their fossil record? Is it like spotty? Well, yes and no, because their really, really thick bony heads fossilize surprisingly well. So we have a lot of Placoderm heads, but not a whole lot of Placoderm rest of the bodies. Oh my gosh. So, <laughs> so were the rest of the bodies just like... Like an empty windsack, or they were just naked. Picturing them could be, could have been. It could that they could have been covered in scales that were just like less likely to fossilize. That they could have been literally like a hagfish, just naked, slimy skin. Gross. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it is gross and fun to think about. It's also, we can't know if those skulls were directly like exposed to the water, or maybe they they were covered in skin as well. We just can't know that. 
Oh, so they might have kind of like a box fish, yeah. you know, where they have body uh-huh. plates underneath the skin. Mm-hmm. So they might have been like really, really freaking cute, like a box fish. Except for Dunkleosteus. We cannot leave the Dragon Junction. Without Duncan on Osteus. God damn it. <laughs> you opened it right up for me. I did. Uh, the up to six meter, uh, 20 feet long, that's basically white shark sized, uh, Dunkleosteus. A scissor jawed tank of a fish thought to be the world's first vertebrate mega predator. A scissor-jawed tank. They were, oh, and also fun fact, because they were one of the placoderms with those really simple jaws, um, they were basically bony shears that eventually filed down to to the point where they could no longer act as scissors. And so a a lot of placoderms with that jaw function probably died of starvation. So wait, you're telling me their jaws actually functioned as scissors, Mm -hmm. not like a guillotine like ours. Like shears. So like the jaws passed each other sideways. Yeah, like kind of like, I wouldn't say grinded against each other, but, you know, the safest version of that evolutionarily possible. No, no, like a camel. I don't know if I'm... But sideways. Kind of, yeah, yeah. Huh. Crazy to think about, right? Why? Why that? <laughs> um, because evolution act on what work at the time. And then things change often, and then things don't work anymore. What kind of kindergarten idea? It's funny you mention that. Uh, clearly it didn't work, because... They're all dead. Um, so we will never, probably never see any kind of placoderm in the living flesh, uh, because they all appear to have perished in the mass extinction that occurred at the end of the Devonian. You're just like, I can't chew! Yeah. <laughs> Despite the fact that some placoderms did have complex jaws and teeth, none of them made it through it. Aw. I feel bad for making fun of them. <laughs> A little dead cousin. They're all, they're all dead, so I think they forgive you. <laughs> you know, the dead are not the most forgiving if horror stories are to be believed. <laughs> How many of those stories are about dead fishes? <laughs> None yet. <laughs> None yet. None yet. We'll see. It's a new niche that we're about to... Uh, but now we are ready to talk about fish jaws. All right. No more scissor jaws. <laughs> no more scissor jaw tank. Fish jaws. Mm-hmm. While there is a general consensus that the first jawed fish has evolved somewhere in that Siluro-Devonian period... Cusp season. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so we know it happened... That happened then. Uh, but what there is less agreement on is everything that happened afterwards. Uh, Basically, the timing and general shape of the adaptive radiation that came when Jaws appeared. Hmm. We just don't know. So the traditional view that some scientists maintain is that the first nathostomes evolutionarily hit the ground running, uh, with new adaptations for feeding styles that exploited new... They were not running, Jared. They were swimming. (laughs) Don't lie to the public. Hit the ground swimming, I feel like, is too far from the They didn't even hit the ground, Jared. That would would mean they're bad at it. Hit the water ground. Hit the, oh, that's even worse. You've <laughs> taken all the badass away from what I was trying to do. They hit the pool diving. I, I don't know. Did they? Did they? So, <laughs> they got to it real fast and a lot. That's what we think. Okay. <laughs> so, the whole um, hit the ground running thing is supported by a number of innovations in feeding style that do appear to have come quite early on in the fossil record that, that we can tell. Uh, these include modifications for the high stress resistance in your jaw that's required for durophagy. You want to get to that is? Chewing? Chewing specifically what? Durophagy. Phagy means to eat. Duro. Durable materials like wood and stuff? Bones. Bones is yes. Exactly. Durophagy. Bones is yes. Bones is yes. <laughs> durophagy is the eating of animals with hard parts like coral or anything with a shell. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Which is, like, cephalopods were booming back then, so. Also, yes. Squid snacks, swimming around. It was, like, fast food central. Squiggy swimming. Squiggy swimming. So, basically, what, what we're going to be talking about here is whether um, this sort of, like, evolutionary optimality happened really, really quick or really, really slowly. Mm, 
okay, so like in a lot of cases where there's this very quick adaptive radiation, you see what we would consider maybe the ideal adaptation, the one that ends up being the most successful, evolving pretty early on. What we're trying to see in this case, did it evolve early on really quickly or did it take a long time? Exactly. So here's the problem, is that the looking at the fossil record just by itself with the, the, the datable specimens we have, um, it would seem that these really, really, really game-winning adaptations appeared really, really early. Uh, but when scientists look at the fossil record again through a statistical lens, it kind of shows the opposite. It kind of shows these really, really cool methods popping up early, like um, Durovagy popped up really early, which is the eating of really hard animals, like the like uh, coral or anything with a shell. Durophagy, eating durable things. Yeah. Exactly. So that popped up su super early, but is that just an exception to the general rule of what they call evolutionary stasis? So, hmm. not that there's like an actual thing as perfection in, in evolution, but did fishes get really, really good at eating and being predators fast, or did it take a lot of time? Interesting. Well, so the first thing that pops into my head is all of the crazy jaws that ancient shark-like animals used to have. Good, good were, point. Like, curly cues and stuff, and I'm like, that was pretty stupid. So, <laughs> I, <laughs> so I'm going to say it takes a long time. We'll see. Uh, so yeah. that's exactly what this week's author set out to uh, settle uh, cool. that, that he debate with some sophisticated but surprisingly simple uh, tests of their own. Great. To start, the authors amassed the fossils of 121 species of early nathostone, uh, ranging from about 427 to 359 million years ago. Oh, right in that cusp season. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And a little bit afterwards, too, uh, to sort of look at the after effects in order into, to analyze... Into the Devonian. Exactly, into the Devonian. Was the Devonian Tiktaalik season? So, I want to say that the first, like, direct evidence of uh, land vertebrates, which is fossil footprints, those are around 310 or so million years old. Late Devonian. Exactly. Cool. So 359 is, at this point in time, probably a little too soon to be seeing those. Okay, cool. That's at least what the fossil record tells us right now. So it's pre-Tiktaalik. Yes. Every, all the vertebrates be in the water. Mm-hmm. Continue. Well, maybe they wash up and die sometimes, but yes. They'd be living in the water. <laughs> They'd be living. I don't know where they'd be dying, though. No one knows. Um, until we find them. But yeah, they gathered those 121 species of early nathostome. Oh, uh, don't get into the habit of thinking that we're just talking about placoderms right now, because every lineage of jawed fish was alive back then. Uh, we have the cartilaginous fishes, we have the bony fishes, and we have the placoderms. They all popped up pretty close in time to each other. The shark-like ones the fish-like ones, and then the um, scissor tank-esque <laughs> <laughs> My boy Dunk. ones, and then the ones that just like kind of look like crazy, bony, muscly faces. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. They're, mm -hmm. they all, they're all here. <laughs> it's a who's who of your weirdest ancestors. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And isn't that fun? Um, so yeah, they did a lot of analysis on the morphology of these jaws, uh, basically enough to create complete and two-dimensional uh, computer models of each mouth. More importantly to say is that they could simulate how that mouth worked uh, in, in a couple ways while its owner was still alive. They simulate what that mouth do. Exactly. So uh, the virtual jaws would be tested on two of the most critical and often opposing functions in fish feeding, uh, which are known as rotational efficiency and strength. Rotational efficiency essentially translates to how fast a jaw is able to snap shut. 
Because the bone, because the bone is on the, like a little 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 pivot thing. Yeah, the little rotation that's in the jaw that makes it a jaw. Mm-hmm. The hinge. If so you will. <laughs> exactly. Um, and high rotational efficiency is very important if you want to evolve to catch fast prey. Yeah, it is. You have to close your mouth before they get out of it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, strength is a fish's best bet uh, to dump their skill points into if they want to bite hard and or chew hard food. It's true. If even if you can close your mouth really fast, if you have like a noodle mouth. That's not doing yeah. anything. Being fast really doesn't mean shit if you want to eat coral. Yeah. You have to... F- yeah. <laughs> you can't be like a fast noodle eating coral. Have you ever seen one? No. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and so, those 121 jaws were p- placed on... It basically looked like an XY axis spectrum. You have rotational efficiency on one axis and strength on, 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 on the other axis. And they were basically put somewhere in this little spectrum, double spectrum, based on their theoretical testing. You want to be in the upper left quadrant. No, upper right. Upper right is the most optimal, but um, what we have to also talk about here is that there's almost no examples of an animal with a really, really fast and really, really strong jaw. Because Um, that stuff takes work. It takes materials. It it takes calories. Not to mention mechanically, those functions in the jaw just seem to oppose each other. You just, like, can't have a jaw that's able to be really fast and really fucking strong. It'll break itself. Exactly. So, having this data, if Nathostome jaw evolution really did take the hard and fast approach, this should manifest in the the fossil record with fish mouths that are optimized for either strength or rotational... Rotisserie chicken. Rotisserie chicken. Either strength or rotisserie chicken. Those are your options. Uh Uh-huh. Um, that are optimized for either strength or rotational efficiency, showing up very early after jaws themselves do. They got optimized real fast. And that would make sense because the ones that weren't optimized literally could not survive or reproduce. Exactly. Moving forward from that point in time, we should be seeing an ever-increasing level of morphological disparity, or differences in mouth structure, along with decreasing levels of optimality in either function over time. This is sort of happening as uh, they're sort of breaking out into new evolutionary niches that might not necessarily require the optimality that that they used to need. Yeah, there's so many new things to eat, like niches to fill, that some mouths that don't make any sense now, like a noodle eating coral, there was some sort of niche that made that okay back then. Lots of them. So the reason we're talking about just these two factors, the the strength and the rotational efficiency, is because these are... Basically, some of the most important things to fish feeding in general. These are things that if, if, if a fish can't do well, it's basically banned from a lot of different lifestyles. Exactly. Banned from a lot of lifestyles. That makes me so sad for them. <laughs> Don't ban them. Be inclusive. <laughs> so to reiterate uh, real, real quick, if uh, evolution really did take that hard and fast approach, this should uh, basically manifest in optimization happening real quickly. And then disparity and morphological differences popping up more and more frequently over time. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. If early nathostomes were instead on a very slow march to progress, as has been suggested in those other statistical studies, basically the opposite trends in optimization and disparity would be seen. Uh, Jaws get less disparate and more optimized over time until they eventually reach a peak a lot later. Yeah, you see a lot of crazy things fill in niches that we don't have anymore, and then things would get pruned out. Mm-hmm. That's Think, the other way. Yeah, things find out that the, the the thing they picked doesn't work really quickly when something changes quickly. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so this means we're probably looking at um, an environment that wasn't changing rapidly. Very likely. All right. 
So, ooh, that's actually something I'm, I'm happy you bring up because that's literally the next thing I was going to talk about. Uh, because what makes our author's manner of testing different from those other statistical studies is that this one interprets its data while making far less assumptions. Um, typically... <laughs> that's good. Yes, exactly. Because you know what they say about assumptions. Make an ass out of me and you. You and me. Typically, when the functional abilities of extinct animal bones are studied, they are done so within the framework of evolutionary fitness by comparing them to their closest living counterparts. The problem here is that survival data of the individuals of ancient species is virtually impossible to quantify, and it's also rather impossible to understand their ecology with absolute certainty. So this extrapolating of living animals to, to extinct ones assumes a good deal of info to be automatically true for these ancient animals that we really have no way of actually confirming. Yeah, that's, um, it's a lot like, uh, what was it, historical presentism? Kinda, yeah. Yeah, assuming that... Well, this is what we have now, so it must have been kind of like that. This was a long time ago. A long ass time ago, bro. Things were very different. Mm -hmm. Literally, nothing was living on land. We're still trying to figure that shit out, too. And yeah. we are a land animal. But we the sure audacity. <laughs> but back to our thing. Yes. So, by leaving the ecology out and by testing only for values of strength and rotational efficiency, um, our authors are able to avoid much of this potentially problematic guesswork. We can't avoid all of the guesswork because we are basically saying that like the stronger or, or faster a jaw, the more adaptive benefit it's going to have. But that's basically the only assumption that this thing is making. Yeah, I mean, this assumption, it's based in math instead of, well, this is what I'm seeing around today. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when they match these jaws on that aforementioned two-axis spectrum, uh, again, one axis is corresponding to increasing jaw depth and increasing jaw length uh, going left to right. Uh, that's going to be... I believe the strength one, and the other axis is showing the transition from a more convex to more concave dorsal surface, or the top of the jaw, as you move down to up. I'm going to link a uh, this article, and so you can actually see those graphs, and then come back to this part, and what I'm saying will make a lot more sense. Okay, yeah, look at our Instagram post yeah. while you're listening to that part, because if you're not looking at a visual, your face will look a lot like mine, Nothing. and my eye is just unfocused. I can tell it just made Madison dissociate a little bit. What? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, once this was done, uh, the authors performed functional analysis on all of those jaws to simulate how quickly they could close and also how much stress they could withstand. Cool, with like, I'm imagining like... Computer programs. Computer programs, like ha, 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 ha. That's exactly what I'm picturing it too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Based on like those old like shitty documentaries. Based specifically on the most extreme yeah. animal planet. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> the worst of computer animation. It's the kind of simulation that I am picturing. Oh boy. Most of the jaws they put into this program didn't crash the program. They worked biologically and they were biologically possible. How'd they put them in? Where were they before? Basically they had to crunch them down into a 2D matrix model fossils. of it. We're talking fossils. Yeah, we're talking fossils. Okay. They took the fossils. They, they took the fossils. They made them real small. They put them into 2D, and they tested them for stress. With a computer program. With a computer program. Why did they need to do that to prove that the jaws worked? Obviously they worked or the animals wouldn't exist. Because the jaws worked within their program, their program was... It had credibility as like an actual thing that showed how the jaws did. Within the parameters of the program, all the jaws worked that did exist. That's showing us that the parameters of the program are probably correct. Yes. Additionally... Plotting rotational efficiency against strength resistance directly, one can clearly see the functional trade-offs that, that exist between these characteristics. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so that's again more credibility to the program, because not only were the trade-offs that should be happening in real life happening, but the jaws were biologically possible within the, within the confines of the program. Yeah, that makes sense. When all of this was done, 
It was now time to plot these jaws in their temporal position in the fossil record. In time! Mm -hmm. In order to visualize the manner that natural selection played with their jaw structure and function as time went on. Let's see what happened when it happened. Yeah. <laughs> and when they did, results were really quite clear-cut. Um, the earliest nathostomes very majoritively had mouths that were strongly optimized for either strength or speed. Oh, so really one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Interesting. With, so not hugging the middle. Huh. Which means that the uh, hard and fast approach is really looking likely here. Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. Also, we saw convergent evolution of jaw shape popping up numerous times as well, which is a testament to those jaw shapes being game-winning adaptations if they're popping up everywhere. Yeah, so the same types of jaws popping up in species that are not sharing a direct common ancestor. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, more to the point, so this same rapid burst of evolution to either a really fast or really strong jaw was repeated in every single major group of fishes. The placoderms, the cartilaginous fishes, the ray-finned bony fishes, and our direct ancestors, the lobe-finned fishes. So we're seeing the same pattern across groups, which mm -hmm. further lends evidence to this being, yeah, hit yep. the ground running, optimization quickly, and oh, yeah. then diversification. All of us convergently evolved really quickly to get stronger fast. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. I'm neither. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's more to the point. A lot of time has passed. Um. <laughs> no, I'm strong. <laughs> Following this mad dash to optimality, one also finds that the disparity across jaw shapes, along with decreasing optimality, also become more and more the rule rather than the exception. This would strongly suggest that nathstomes did indeed take the hard and fast approach rather than a slow march to optimality. So, if fish jaws got really fast or really strong very soon after first evolving, why is it that we're seeing all those deviations from that optimality as those adaptive radiations continue? Why are things getting shittier? Because maybe something happened in the environment that made a lot of stuff real different? Good point! Caveat. While it's important to remember that this work in, in particular can only draw conclusions about the strength and speed of those jaws, we can still talk and speculate about the shape of that following evolutionary deviation and what that morphological disparity looked like. Basically, we can be like, ooh, I wonder if that happened because suddenly there were tons of flying squid, or ooh, I wonder if that happened because suddenly everything got hotter. Exactly. So here's what we do know. Um, we know what the departures were caused by, what those departures from optimality were caused by, rather. The departures from optimality were largely caused by fish lineages transitioning into jaw arrangements with less strength, but keeping up their speed. Knowing this, it wouldn't really be reaching to guess that a shift or shift in ecological factors helped to, to bring this about, like a major shift in maybe prey preference. Ooh, so this- ooh. could I say? Yes. Like maybe when the cephalopods lost their shells and got really fast? change fast with tiny, because we're talking about plankton. Oh. So this is what our authors speculate. They were thinking that um, because a number of feeding modes can require a fast but not necessarily strong mouth, like uh, ram feeding, which is swimming fast with your mouth open, mm -hmm. uh, lunge feeding, literally exactly what it sounds like, mm -hmm. um, and other plankton feeding strategies all popped up sort of like intermediately while all of this disparity was happening, sort of lines up pretty well. So that's what they think might be happening. A change in what type of plankton was available. Yeah, possibly some, possibly plankton were evolving to become more common in certain areas. Possibly something changed in the, even the composition of their skeleton. More maybe, things were starting to reproduce. Yeah. Planktonically? Maybe. Pelagically? There's so many maybes. Yeah. And it's really cool to think about. Fun. Yeah. Okay. There you have it. 
Um, this was not a long study. Oh. <laughs> when you take out all the stats, this was not a long study. At least for now, um, until more sophisticated tests can reveal even more about our ancient jawed ancestors. Uh, the beginnings of Nathostome history were likely characterized by a strong selective pressure that forced the earliest fishes to optimize their jaws to eat tough or quick food fast or die trying. As time went on, though, something or things changed to relax that selective pressure and allowed the jawed fishes to, to, to explore new ecologies, prey items, and evolutionary trade-offs. And that last aspect continues to be reflected in the insane variety of niches that both the jawed fishes and their terrestrial ancestors including us, continue to occupy today. You know what I just thought? What's that? Just a fun pet theory. What's that? Maybe it was the radiation of fishes that was the change that allowed so many more different types of prey to be available because there were so many different types of fish literally creating more niches as they diversified. Red queens everywhere. Yeah. That's awesome. Just a thought. Just a thought. That's, that's a fun thought to think on, though. That's the fun part of science for me is the part where it's like, we don't know, imagine. I feel like you could be a good paleo artist. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah, threw it up. From a man with a skeleton of a dinosaur tattooed on his arm, that two, means a lot. Two dinosaurs. Two. Mm -hmm. Guys, two. I think I'm getting Enotranchibia next, which is a stem mammal. Um, uh -huh. Just a huge fucking gorgon. A mammal? Stem mammal. Stem mammal. The mammals before the mammals. A pre-mammal, if yeah. you will. Mm -hmm. Okay. You ever seen a gorgon offset? Nope. Picture like a saber-toothed cat that looks like a weird naked crocodile. Cool. Yeah. Show me. <laughs> I'm going to show you, man. That's in a Gorgonopsid. Bye, everybody. Bye.